acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, we're doing some Canadian history. Mm-hmm. But it's also Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means this one is a little bit on the darker side. This one is a murder mystery, sort of. We know what happened and who was involved, but the details of what led to everything happening the way it did are a little fuzzy. And there are a lot of things that have been... It seems like systematically erased from the historical record. Um, so this one r- remains a mystery. Heads up, we do want to let you know this episode involves a lot of discussion of a domestic violence incident that involves guns. It also involves speculation in the press about the mental health of those involved. But this is about uh, what's often called the Red Path Murders. On June 13th, 1901, Ada Maria Redpath, who was 59, and her son, Jocelyn Clifford, age 26, were found shot to death in their home, which was known as the Redpath Mansion. We're going to talk about that uh, in the behind the scenes. But more than 120 years later, what exactly happened to lead to those deaths remains unknown. We know how they died, but why is probably something we're never going to understand. So... We want to tell their story, but first we're going to start by talking about Ada's life and the lives of two of her children who are closest to this strange tragedy. Ada Maria Mills was born April 26, 1842, into a well-off family. Her father, John Easton Mills, was a well-known and successful businessman. He died when Ada was still a small child. 
He was, um, I believe, the mayor of Montreal when he died. He had only held that post for, I think, less than a year at the time. But that's kind of illustrative of how how well-known and how prominent he was. Ada married John James Redpath in Putney, England, when she was 25. Because she was from a well-off family, Ada and John had a marriage contract that reads kind of like a modern prenup. It stated that she would retain total control of her own wealth and assets. Uh, It's often referred to as wording being as though she had never married. So, like, literally completely siloed off away from her husband's money. She would later insist that her daughter would have the same financial autonomy should she ever choose to marry. John James Redpath was himself from a wealthy family. His father, John Redpath Sr., had moved to Canada from Scotland in the early 19th century and made a fortune in construction, And he used that fortune to purchase more than 200 acres of land on Mount Royal, just northwest of Montreal. He subdivided this land and resold a lot of it. And as other wealthy families purchased the land and built on it, this established a really wealthy neighborhood that came to be known as the Square Mile. Over the next hundred years, the community of the Square Mile neighborhood became more and more intertwined. A lot of families became linked through various marriages amongst themselves. Uh, Yeah, and all of those families also kind of made a lot of business deals with each other. So their wealth kind of kept folding in on itself. And they, like I said, it became this little enclave. When John and Ada married, John was working in the Red Path family sugar refinery. He had been a partner in the firm at that point for several years. But he didn't stay in that industry for a very long time after the marriage, though, and he actually left it to join the Victoria Rifles. That's a volunteer military regiment based in Montreal that had formed in 1862. And that seems like sort of a good indication that John really did not have to worry about income. Ada and John had five children over the course of eight years, starting in 1868. They were Amy, Peter, John, Reginald, Harold, and Jocelyn Clifford, who went by Clifford. Ada had been the one to purchase the family home at 1065 Sherbrooke Street West in the Square Mile. She did that with her family money in 1870. We'll talk about that house a bit more on Friday. Yeah, there's a little bit of confusion about which house was the house <laughs> that I I'm ran into say, doing research. <laughs> looking for a picture to put on our social media for this, I sure did look at a lot of incredibly similar-looking houses from right on that same street. Yeah, this is also a problem where um, there's more than one house called the Red Path Mansion in <laughs> in this area. So at some point in her life, though, Ada began having a variety of health problems. This is a little bit tricky because the specific nature of those issues is hard to pin down. She was treated for a lot of different things, both physical and psychological, including trigeminal neuralgia, melancholy, and joint pain. Any readings that the family wrote about her generally describe her in ways that kind of characterize her as just being frail or fragile by the time she was in her 40s. It also seems like she was away from her home and her children a lot for treatments for these various problems. In an undated letter that she sent the family from New York while she was being fitted for braces for her joint problems, she wrote, quote, My dear children, the doctors say that it would be much better if I could remain until Monday. 
They want me to get quite accustomed to my new brace before I leave and find out all its faults so that they can send me home in good order and comfortable for they do not want me to have to come back here very, very soon. You see, there is no one in Montreal who can alter the brace and change it if it should hurt me and it is better that I should stay here until they have made it fit well. It has hurt me dreadfully, but every day they make some little change, and tonight it is more comfortable, although not quite right yet, and I cannot walk at all yet without my crutches. It stretches my leg so much that it makes it an inch longer than the well leg, and doctors say that I must let them put a thick three-quarter inch sole on the boot of my well foot. If they do this, poor Harold will think me more of a giant than ever." But never mind, if only they will let me go home, I will be willing to wear anything they please. And bless you, my darlings, will be so glad to see your mother that you won't stop to find fault with her looks. God bless you, my precious children, your loving mother. After Ada's husband, John James Redpath, died on June 4, 1884, Ada relied increasingly on her children, particularly her only daughter, who was also her oldest child, that was Amy, and her youngest son, Clifford. Amy was born on May 16, 1868, the year after Ada and John were married. The Redpaths lived abroad during their early marriage, so Amy was born in Europe and then arrived in Canada when she was still a small child. From an early age, Amy was deeply devoted to her family, although we don't really know if this was just her natural tendency or if it was because she knew the expectation was that she would need to help with running the house and caring for her younger siblings. It was really routinely expected of unmarried daughters at the time that they would fill a role of that nature within their family, and Amy had never expressed any obvious interest in marriage or even mentioned any suitors in her writing growing up. This, of course, led to various speculations. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about some of those on Friday as well. Jocelyn Clifford Redpath was born on November 17, 1876. And although his sister Amy was only eight, she was one of his sponsors slash godparents at his baptism. Clifford, who also went by Cliff, studied at McGill University, and he joined the law program there in 1897. Once he started studying law, he also started apprenticing at the law firm of Campbell, Meredith, Allen, and Haig, and he was on track for a law career when he graduated in 1900 and started to study for the bar exam. By the end of the 1800s, only Amy and Clifford were still at home with Ada, and they took care of her. Amy ran the house, and Clifford managed the finances with advice from his older brothers and uncles. To be clear, while they were their mother's primary companions, they weren't managing her care alone. There was also a full house staff who Amy hired and managed, including a nurse. But they were put in the position of being the heads of the household. Ada would travel to upstate New York in the summers to spend time in specialty clinics or health resorts, and Clifford usually traveled with her. On one occasion in 1898, when Ada was traveling with her older son, Peter, instead of Clifford, she was so clingy with Amy at the train station that she was set to leave that Amy decided she had to go with their mother as well, even though she did not have any luggage or travel gear with her. Yeah, she wrote in a letter to, I believe it was a cousin, about like, I'm going to Saratoga Springs and I don't even have gloves. <laughs> she just was like, I have nothing. Um, 
Amy and Clifford were also very close, and they spent a lot of time together, even when it was not necessitated by their household duties or responsibilities. So they would attend social gatherings and church together. They often took long walks together. And Amy helped Cliff with his law studies. She would even rewrite the notes that he had taken during lectures so that they would be easier for him to study when he was studying for the bar. Basically, like she was writing study guides for him. Clifford was also very, very close with their mother. In a letter to Clifford in 1898, Ada's attachment to her youngest son is apparent. She wrote, quote, Dearest, oh, how I miss you. I have come so to depend on you that I am lost without you. Nothing seems worthwhile without you, your most loving old mother. Though she was still only in her late 50s, by 1901, when the shooting took place, Ada's health had declined to the point that she spent her time almost exclusively in her bedroom, and she had stopped attending even family events. Cliff, on the other hand, seemed to have a life that was just on the precipice of real success. In early June of 1901, there were discussions at the law firm where he'd apprenticed about making him a partner once he passed the bar. That never happened. We are going to talk about how the tragedy in the Red Path home unfolded, but first we will pause for a sponsor break. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. 
And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So we mentioned at the top of the episode that Ada and Clifford were, quote, found dead. And that is often how it's reported. But to me, that wording tends to convey this sense of distance, like the house had been empty except for them, or that they had been dead for some period of time before being found, or that there could be questions about if someone else had been in the house. None of that was the case. It was absolutely not. They had been discovered immediately because there were plenty of other people in the house when the shots were fired. Those people heard the shots and they went to investigate right away. That sort of hazy and confusing sense of them being discovered later started immediately in the press. The Calgary Herald ran a brief notice about the deaths that read in part, quote, Mrs. John J. Redpath of Sherbrooke Street, a widow lady, and her son, 25, were found dying in their house in Mrs. Redpath's room late in the night from bullet wounds in the heads. The son is in the hospital, unable to make a statement, The mother died within an hour without making a statement. All of this actually happened around 6 p.m., so the the late-in-the-night statement is not really correct. No, there's a a lot of incorrect stuff, as we'll discuss. Um, As we said, there were other people home. The oldest of the Red Path sons, Peter, was there. He heard the gunfire and he ran right to the sound, which was, as we've said, in his mother's room. There were also members of the house staff in the home who also went to the room. Ada did die on the scene. Some reports say she died instantly. Others make it sound like she may have died a few minutes after being found. Clifford was still alive, although unconscious, and he was reportedly taken to the Royal Victoria Hospital, He died that night at 11 or 11.15 or maybe 11.50, maybe shortly after midnight, depending on what account you read. Incidentally, he was never registered in hospital records as having been admitted to the Royal Victoria or to any other hospital 
This is one of just a lot of small inconsistencies and gaps in the information about the shooting that have kept people scratching their heads for more than a century. As soon as this tragedy hit the news, there were rumors about what had really happened in the Red Path home. And there were a lot of factors that fueled the spread of those rumors. For one, the Red Paths were very, very wealthy. They were from a largely insular community of similarly wealthy families. So people naturally had a tendency to want to speculate. But for another, the sheer shock of a tragedy like this just led people to speculate about it. But there were really three very significant contributing factors. One, there was little investigation into the shootings. Two, the family was largely unwilling to discuss the matter publicly. Now, on the one hand, this is totally understandable. Who would want to talk about the sudden murder-suicide of two family members while grieving and likely in shock? But because no one from the house was saying very much, their quiet started to be framed as possibly covering something up. And three, the details kept changing from report to report. One idea was that Ada had a mental break that was brought on by ongoing insomnia, and that somehow led to the shooting. This is the narrative that came up in news reports immediately after the tragedy. The Sherbrooke Daily Record of Montreal printed the following on June 14th, quote, A very sad affair occurred last evening. For some months, Mrs. J.J. Redpath had been a confirmed invalid, one of the characteristics of her malady being prolonged insomnia. About six o'clock, the household heard an explosion and hurrying to her room found both Mrs. Redpath and her son, Mr. Clifford Redpath, seriously wounded by revolver shot. Mrs. Redpath died in a short time. Her son was removed in an unconscious condition to the Royal Victoria Hospital where he expired about midnight. Neither could give any account of what had happened. A write-up in the weekly news advertiser of Vancouver, British Columbia, offered similar speculation, offering, quote, no details of the tragedy are known. Mrs. Redpath had been ill for some time, suffering from insomnia. The surmise is that while temporarily mentally deranged, Mrs. Redpath attempted to end her life, and in attempting to prevent her, her son was shot. The unfortunate lady then completed her undertaking. But the Ottawa citizen had a different take. Yes, Ada was having issues with mental health because of insomnia, but she wasn't dangerous because of it. Their write-up states, quote, who was responsible for the tragedy is yet a mystery. For some years, Mrs. Redpath has suffered greatly from insomnia to such an extent that her mind was affected. Dr. Roddick had been in constant attendance upon her, but it was not imagined that her condition was at all likely to result in violence to herself or the members of her family. Another account from the Quebec Daily Mercury seems to state as fact the idea that Clifford murdered his mother and then himself in a drunken rage. Quote, it has transpired in connection with the Redpath tragedy that Clifford Redpath shot his mother and then put two bullets in his own head. They had been quarreling for some time, and young Redpath is said to have been under the influence of liquor at the time of the tragedy. The young man was a law student. The actual findings of the coroner's inquest were different from all of these theories, and it happened very quickly, as in the day after the shooting is when the inquest was held. 
And the coroner's jury was made up of members of wealthy families from the small square mile community. There were John Dunn's Jr., H. Browning, Lansing Lewis, ECB Fanshawe, George Hyde, Bartlett McLennan, Francis McLennan, John Walker, W. Maurice, John Savage, W.W. Watson, Charles Esdely, and Herbert Wallace. The Halifax Morning Herald reported, quote, investigation by the coroner's jury today put a new light on the Redpath tragedy of yesterday. The evidence showed that Mrs. Redpath had been shot twice, once in the back of the head and then a second time in the right shoulder, while the bullet had entered young Redpath's head to the right of the left temple. The jury brought in a verdict that the young man had killed his mother in a fit of temporary insanity brought on by an epileptic fit and then taken his own life. The first story given out by the family that the shooting had probably been done by the mother was due to the fact that the young man was still alive. I feel like we should just note that a lot of the language being used to discuss things like epilepsy and mental illness... Completely outdated. Very outdated and offensive by today's standards, so, like, just don't go repeating it in casual conversation. Uh, This also brings into focus one detail that changed repeatedly about all this. Although initial accounts from multiple sources stated that there were two shots, there was one account in a paper that Clifford had shot himself twice. And then this account, which said that he had shot his mother twice, that would be three shots total. So that's just another aspect of all this that was inconsistent. Now, subsequent testimonies, and we're going to get to those in a moment, do support that three shots number. It seems like some papers may have run on the assumption that it was just two in their haste to get the news to print. As we said, we're reading these news reports that are happening like day of. But that is also the kind of detail that you might think would surely show up in a police report. Of course it would. Hey, there isn't one because there was no police investigation. A coroner's jury was assembled there at the home, but there was never a police presence. They were never called. Now, how the coroner ended up there but the police didn't is a little unclear, although it is most likely that someone from the house staff or the family called the coroner, Ed McMahon, through some sort of personal connection. The Weekly News advertiser of Montreal even noted in an article about the shooting, quote, the family refused any information and the police only heard of the matter by accident. The family have issued a statement, but from it, nothing can be learned of the details of the tragedy beyond the fact that two people are dead. We'll get into the details of those witness testimonies to try to unravel this thing a bit after we first pause to hear from the sponsors that keep the show going. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. There were several witness statements that were given and heard by the coroner's jury. Those statements were given by Peter Redpath, Ada's son and Clifford's older brother, Thomas George Roddick, the family doctor, Hugh Patton and Rollo Campbell, both of whom were doctors, 
Rose Shallow, who worked for the Red Path. Sometimes her name is written as Rosa, but it appears to have actually been Rose. And Charles James Fleet, who also worked in the home. According to the coroner's jury report, Peter testified to the details that we've already mentioned. According to Peter Redpath, here's what happened. Quote, Yesterday evening, I saw my brother, the deceased, arriving home at around 6 o'clock. He seemed ill and was tired, working hard to prepare for his bar exams. He went up to the room of my mother, Ada Maria Mills, age 62, and a few seconds later, I heard a shot from a firearm followed by two others. I ran up and broke down the door. I saw my mother lying on the floor and several feet from her, my brother also lying in a pool of blood, a revolver a foot away from him near his hand. My brother had been very nervous for some time. Incidentally, he got his mother's age wrong. She was 59. So Dr. Roddick also testified that he was called to confirm the death. Roddick's testimony really is the one that sets up the idea that, based on the position of the bodies, he believed that Cliff shot his mother and then himself. Roddick is also the one that introduced the information that Cliff was epileptic. And this really establishes the way things shook out in the jury investigation. But there is a little snag here. Roddick had been in Montreal on the day of the shooting, which is, you know, not where Square Mile is. It's a little outside the city. And by some accounts, he didn't actually get to the Square Mile neighborhood until the following day. When Dr. Patton gave his statement, he said that Ada had been shot in the back of the head and that Clifford was shot through the left temple. Dr. Campbell backed up Patton's account and added that he thought he saw foam in Clifford's mouth, suggesting that as evidence that some kind of epileptic seizure was the cause of Clifford's behavior. Rose Shallow stated that she had heard the shots and followed Peter Redpath up the stairs to Ada's room and that she had seen the two bodies on the floor a few feet apart, as well as two revolvers near Clifford. Charles James Fleet stated that Dr. Campbell had given him the two revolvers from the scene to secure, which he produced for the jury to show that one had been discharged twice and the other had been discharged once. In the matter of the death of Ada Redpath, the jury statement read, quote, We, the undersigned jurors, having heard the evidence declare that Ada Maria Mills died at Montreal on the 13th day of June 1901 from a gunshot wound apparently inflicted by Clifford Jocelyn Redpath while unconscious of what he was doing and temporarily insane owing to an epileptic attack from which he was suffering at the time. There is actually a very long quote from Ada Redpath's son, Harold, which was released in a lot of papers along with the news of the coroner's jury's findings. In it, Harold stated that, quote, I left Clifford about two o'clock yesterday in good spirits, though somewhat unwell. In fact, Clifford had been indisposed for some time, owing to hard work preparing for his day examinations. No one knows just how the affair occurred. Clifford was particularly fond of his mother. The statement from Harold Redpath goes on to say that the older brother believed that the only explanation that made any sense was that Clifford had some sort of, quote, moment of temporary aberration, and that led to the shooting. The brothers had, according to Harold, been planning a trip to Quebec so that Clifford could get in some quiet time and continue his studying. As we said, this statement is long. It's paragraphs long, 
And even though it's framed in the write-up as though it was part of a conversation that Harold had with a reporter, it really reads like a press release. Harold may have been exactly as well-spoken as the lengthy quote makes him seem, but his answer may also have been edited by the paper to take out things like repetition or to improve clarity. This also makes it seem kind of like this was the family's one public statement that they were going to make on the matter. Yeah, if you've ever read somebody's interview and read a press statement, they're not the same in tone. Uh, And this one definitely, like I said, it reads like a press statement. There are some pieces of information that are held up as evidence that Clifford Redpath was not in any way suicidal. One of these is a check, which he wrote to the Bar of Montreal just two days before the shooting to pay for his examination fee. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, he was also in discussion with his bosses at the law firm where he was apprenticing about becoming a partner just days before this all happened. Uh, People that hold to this theory that Clifford was not suicidal point out that conversely, his sister Amy's descriptions of their mother Ada in the months leading up to the deaths describe her as being in a very depressed state where she considered life, quote, a burden. The funeral for Ada and Clifford was held at St. John the Evangelist Church the day after the coroner's jury came to their conclusion regarding the shooting. It was less than 48 hours after it happened. This was unusual because they were both given a high Anglican funeral, even though suicide and homicide would have both been disqualifiers for such a service for Clifford. A paper written by researchers from McGill University about the family and the deaths for the Material Culture Review makes the case that Amy Redpath was influential enough in the Square Mile community She was able to get Clifford the formal funeral, despite it really being contrary to church policy. Both Ada and Clifford were interred at Mount Royal Cemetery. Yeah, it's also pointed out often that um, in municipal records, there are no suicides listed as having occurred that year. So whether or not Amy was influential enough to have made sure those were not on the record, we don't know. But Amy really controlled the flow of information, or lack thereof, about the shooting and prevented anything else from spreading to the public. She seems to have destroyed any discussion of the matter that may have passed among family members in letters and wrote to her sister-in-law on August 24th, so just a little over two months after this tragedy, quote, I spent yesterday sorting and tearing up old letters. Rather a mournful business. One of the things that really stands out as odd in the weeks and years following the murder-suicide was the way in which Cliff was discussed within the Redpath family in the few surviving letters. Every note about this tragedy speaks of what an amazing young man he was and how adored he was, what a loss it is that he's gone. But the same really cannot be said for Ada. They don't say much of her. We don't know, of course, if this is a case where Clifford's youth played a role in shaping the way that people in the family grieved for him, or if there were any kind of missives that expressed anger about his actions or spoke more mournfully about the family matriarch that we just don't have. Ada's estate valued at $179,086.06 was distributed among her heirs. 
Amy chose to stay in the house where her brother and her mother died, although the rest of the family mostly left the Montreal area in the decade that followed the tragedy. She also married Dr. Thomas Roddick, who had been the attending physician to Mrs. Redpath and a key witness in the coroner's inquest. Three years after the shooting, one of the Redpath cousins, Lily Dougal, wrote a novel titled The Summit House Mystery, which borrowed details from this murder-suicide at the Redpath home in 1901. Yeah, it also kind of combines some uh, details that seem like they came from the Lizzie Borden story. So, like, it's not something you can point to and go, ha-ha, these are clues. It was definitely fictionalized stuff. McGill University still has the Red Path Library and the Red Path Museum. Their family donated a lot of money to the university over the years. The library's function has changed. It's now used as a hall for large events like school ceremonies. But the Red Path Museum, which was designed by architects Hutchinson and Steele in 1882 and has been called the first purpose-built museum in Canada, is still a natural sciences museum. The Red Path Mansion is not a place you can visit, though. It no longer exists. The home was demolished in 1956. Amy had died two years prior, and the property was purchased by a development company. We will, of course, never know what exactly happened in Ada's bedroom on June 13, 1901. We know that both of those people died by gunshot, but because of how the whole incident was handled, it can be difficult to trust even the official record on the matter of who shot who. And we have no idea what may have transpired between Ada and Cliff to catalyze their tragic deaths. If there was any insight into that, it seems that Amy Redpath probably destroyed it. One thing we haven't talked about regarding the Redpath family, and Amy in particular, is that she was a writer. She wrote a number of closet dramas. Those are plays that were written to be performed either privately or not at all. And she also wrote poetry. She wrote two poems about her brother Cliff after he died. We don't know of any that she wrote for her mother. One of her poems to Clifford, which is titled Perfect in Thy Promise, clearly shows her working through her grief in an effort to find peace in the loss of her brother. So that seemed like a good place to end this one. Perfect in thy promise as the bud unfolding, perfect in thyself as rose fresh blown, ever gracious, all that's pure and good upholding, perfect spirit, hast thou really flown? Must I dwell alone the many dismal morrows, far from blissful hope together spanned? Hope of service through assuaging dearth and sorrows, hope of golden deeds together planned. No, the heavy morning weeds I tear asunder struggle from the clouds that blacken round. Close my ears to their unholy, woesome thunder, rise anew to life from grief unbound. Perfect spirit, now I know that thou art near me. In thy prescient calm I rest content, trusting in thy love to guard and help and steer me till I too have reached life's high ascent. Not the most Halloween-y of Halloween-y episodes, but, uh, you know, uh, a mystery murder seemed like Mm -hmm. the right fit for today. You have some listener mail for us? I sure do. It's about an older episode and an artist that I love, because that seemed like a peppier place to land this. This is from our listener, Andy, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been listening to the podcast since 2015-ish, and I'm always trying to come up with a good reason to write you. Well, this may or may not actually be a good reason, but it made me think of you. As an aside, you can just write us and say hi. Uh, (laughs) And also, hello, if you're going to talk about art, that's always a very good reason. 
Andy writes, I was in Venice recently at the end of a three-month trip around Europe, and the Palazzo Ducale had a special showing of Artemisia Gentileschi's Mary Magdalene in Ecstasy on loan from a private collection. To be honest, I think a lot of people brushed past it, and I wouldn't have even known who Artemisia Gentileschi was if it wasn't for the podcast, so I kind of felt like I was in on a secret. I wish I had some insightful info to add here, but this is mostly just me popping in to say hello, and you don't really want the deluge of all the history nerdery I soaked up on the trip, though I suspect you two of all people would appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you do. Cheers, Andy. Uh, This also has photos of that painting and Venice and her cat and uh, Andy's cat, Luna, which is always a delight. Uh, Luna is very, very cute and and is wearing a kicky little red sweater and looks adorable. Yay. Andy, thank you so much. No, I I love hearing that people you know appreciated art in a new way uh, because of the show. That's a great honor to us, but also ooh, lucky. <laughs> um, anytime there's a painting like that that's normally in a private collection and not on public view, and then goes up as a loner, that's kind of a thrill. So I'm glad you got to see it, and I'm glad you shared that with us. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, easy as pie, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound... Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.